Well, please do turn to Colossians chapter 2. It's page 984 if you're using the church Bibles. That's Colossians chapter 2. We're back to our series going through this letter of the Apostle Paul, and the great message of the letter is found in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, King Jesus, that is, the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, continue to walk with Christ Jesus as your Lord. This is the road to Christian maturity. That, remember, is such a key thing in this letter. Just back to chapter 1, verse 28. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And maturity, Christian maturity, is rooted in that fundamental confidence that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. There it is in chapter 2, verse 3. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. But the Apostle Paul knows that there are persuasive voices which divert and stumble Christian believers in their walk. Verse 4, he's saying this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Arguments which point to other routes to Christian maturity through perhaps a fuller experience, whatever that is, a, a stricter lifestyle, uh, mystical moments. That they're all attractive to different people at different times. And here in chapter 2, there are three warnings. Chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Now, we saw last time, which is three weeks ago, um, in chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, we were looking at the first of those, the risk of spiritual captivity. And it begins with the realization that not only this is how to, to meet this risk and avoid it, we need to realize that not only does the whole fullness of deity dwell bodily in Christ, but that we who are Christians, who put our trust in this Christ, this Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been filled in him. There's that extraordinary statement at the beginning of verse 10 of chapter 2. You have been filled in him, united with him by faith. He's got the whole fullness of Godhead, of deity dwelling bodily in him, and you have been filled in him. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise even if their arguments are plausible. Well, today we're looking at the second and third warnings in verses 16 and 18. So we'll pick it up in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, 
puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the body of the local church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits or the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, probably matters of food, which perishes. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, let's pray for God's help. Father, as we consider our Lord Jesus Christ and this teaching of the Apostle, please would you send among us your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, and may he do what he delights to do, which is to point to our Lord Jesus and honor him. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you ever been made to feel inferior by another Christian? Maybe not so deliberately, but nonetheless, you felt it. And if that's never happened to you as a Christian, if I were a betting man, I'd say, well, it's only a matter of time before that happens. Maybe it's their rigorous spiritual practices and devotions which put you to shame, their enviable self-discipline, or the way they talk about their relationship with God. You've never had the kind of spiritual feelings that they talk about so freely. The apparent closeness to God, the, the way God seems to speak to them directly and direct their every step. Never been your experience. Have you ever been made to feel that the church you belong to is a bit inferior, a bit second-rate? Maybe it's just a size thing that you, you hear about this really big, successful church and you realize your church is much, much smaller. Or maybe the, the corporate worship, the particularly the singing, say, it's okay, but it's not a patch on the vibrancy of the super church. And the preaching seems so plodding compared to the wow speakers at the wow churches. Well, the message the Apostle Paul has for us is clear. Don't let other Christians, other churches, make you feel that way. They have no reason to do so. They are robbing you or in danger of robbing you of your Christian fullness. Remember verse 10 of chapter, chapter 2, you have been filled in him. 
and of your Christian freedom, which goes with it, as we'll see in these verses. And today, the title that we've given to these verses is The Secret of Christian Freedom. We have a freedom as Christians. What is the secret? Well, we're going to find out. It begins with a clear grasp of the fullness we have in Christ. We saw that in verses 8 to 15. And it continues with two more key things, which is the subject of our time together now. First, we need to develop a faith that is non-stick. Now, that's why I brought the frying pan from the kitchen, because I thought, how can I help people remember this? Non-stick frying pan, right? Now, let's not debate the pros and cons. It's non-stick, and there it is. We need a non-stick faith. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Don't let the judgment of others stick, condemning you because of questions of food and drink or special days, be they annual, like a festival, verse 16, or a new moon, a monthly thing, or a Sabbath, a weekly thing. Now, verse 16 may seem a rather strange world to us, Food and drink, what is this talking about? Well, it seems to be talking about a kind of stricter version of Christianity, a stricter religious version of Christianity. Oh, you should not be eating that or drinking this. No, 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 not as a Christian. And by the way, are you observing those special days in the religious calendar properly? I don't know if you've ever felt condemned by another Christian because of what you're eating and drinking. We need to beware of teaching that tells us that Christians shouldn't eat this or that food if you want to be really spiritual. Well, by all means, be a vegetarian or eat organic red meat, but don't impose it on others in the name of Christian maturity or superior spiritual wisdom. Likewise, for days... Think of the church calendar. What do you think of? If I said to you the words church calendar, what, what comes into your mind? Well, there's Christmas and Easter. Anything else? Um, oh, Good Friday. We have a service on Good Friday, don't we? Do you know some churches don't have service on, on Good Friday? Do we look down at them? We're a superior church because we do. Well, don't do that. Just as we don't want other churches to look down on us because we don't have an Ascension Day service. When did we last have an Ascension Day service? I've no idea. I know it's not for the last 11 years. Now there are churches which say, well, you've got to have an Ascension Day service. It's a really important day in the, in the calendar of the church. No, we don't want others to look down on us because of days we do not celebrate or observe. Likewise, we mustn't look down on others who don't observe the days we observe. I mean, why do we do Christmas on the 25th of December? Where's that in the Bible? Or Sunday. Is it the Christian Sabbath <clears throat> such that, for example, Sunday sport is wrong for a Christian and the really spiritual family will never allow their children so much as to kick a football on a Sunday even in their own garden, 
Shall I leave the question hanging there? Well, let me say this. What is clear about Sundays for the Christian, as you read the New Testament, is that it's called the Lord's Day. But what does that mean? Well, we're not told exactly. One of the obvious things to do is to gather on the Lord's Day, because if one day in seven is special in that it is somehow the Lord's Day in a way that the other days are not the Lord, all days are the Lord's in one sense, but if there's a sense in which there is something special about Sunday, which historically is probably because it's the day of resurrection, it's the day when Jesus was found to have been risen from the dead, it's the day on which the Holy Spirit seven weeks later was poured out on the church, so historically we can understand why it was Sundays that Christians began to gather. And of course, in the Roman Empire, Sunday was a working day. Um, so they met early morning or after work in the evening. But what is it that is commanded in the New Testament? The answer is not specifically to meet on a Sunday, even though it's the Lord's Day. What is commanded is to meet together. So, for example, in Hebrews 10, 25, don't stop meeting together. It's put as a negative command. Don't stop, or double negative, don't stop meeting together. In other words, carry on meeting together. Don't stop it like some are doing. And encourage one another, and all the more so as you see the day approaching, the big day, the day of the Lord's return. So every Sunday, every opportunity to gather for us, which is on a Sunday for us, is one more opportunity before the Lord returns. And if we miss it without good reason, we can't get it back. It's gone. And we fail to encourage our brothers and sisters by gathering, if we're able to do so. But we could meet on a Friday evening. We won't take a vote on it, but we could meet on a Friday evening. And we would be no less a church than if we met on a Sunday. Because meeting on a Sunday is a human precept and teaching. It's not mandated in the Scriptures in the New Testament. And again, as we think about verse 16, by all means be an ascetic, abstaining from alcohol or red meat or animal products or whatever it is, but don't insist on it in the case of others as a mark of a superior relationship with God or being a superior human being. And if you have your own list of do's and don'ts, especially don'ts, like in verse 21, don't handle this, don't taste that, don't touch that. Remember two things. One, these don'ts, do not, are not required by God's word. They are just as verse 22, at the end of verse 22, puts it, human precepts and teachings. Unless, of course, you're stuck in the Old Testament in the law of Moses and haven't realized your freedom in Christ. The question is, why are you submitting them if, verse 20, you died with Christ to the, well, I think probably it's better, elementary principles of the world? This is the way the world thinks. It thinks in terms of rules that you have to keep. Whatever your sphere of work is, whatever your involvement in life, I guarantee you that there'll be a set of rules. It might be unspoken rules, but it's often written rules. And these are, the, these are the way you do things. These are the protocols. These are the guidelines. Consult them, refer to them, and then you'll know how you should live. That's the way the world operates. 
And in a sense, that's how we operate as Christians. We have the Bible, it's the Word of God. But in another sense, we're given huge freedom. And to be constantly wanting to know, what is the rule here? What am I not to do? What am I to do? Is not a mark of Christian freedom. So we must make sure that we're not just following rules that are actually human precepts and teaching, or at least if we do, that we recognize that it's not the Word of God. We can't insist on it for others. Then the other thing I think we need to note, if we're into do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, if we've got various rules that we're seeking to live by for ourselves, that although they may have an appearance of wisdom, as verse 23 puts it, they, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, they are promoting a self-made religion. This is made up by human beings like us. And as the verse goes on to say, despite the severity to the body that seems to be part of this self-discipline here, in verse 23, these practices, as the end of verse 23 puts it, are of no value, zero value, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, let me try and be clear on this. Self-control is a good thing. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. When God sends His Spirit into the life of an individual and they become a Christian, and they put their faith in the Lord Jesus, and they turn from their sin. The Holy Spirit comes in, and part of the fruit of his dwelling in the believer is self-control. So this is not in any way denigrating or demeaning self-control. That is an important quality of a Christian believer. But that is an internal thing. That is a matter of the heart and the mind by the grace and mercy of God. It's not a matter of external things, because this is talking about severity to the body, verse 23. It's talking about, it seems, some kind of form of physical punishment to yourself to try and restrain ungodliness in your life, beating yourself in some way. And that kind of thing has been practiced over the centuries. If you know anything about church history, over all the centuries of church history, there have been groups who have tried to do this have tried to sort of beat the ungodliness out of themselves or out of others. And it doesn't work, and it's quite wrong. And sadly, it persists to this day. And if you are involved in such things, please, please stop it. And if you know other Christians involved in it, please talk to someone appropriate. And if you're not sure who someone appropriate is, talk to me, and I'll try and help you. We're all of us, if we're Christians, battling with our sinful human nature. That's what I think the word flesh at the end of verse 23 means. And that flesh, that sinful human nature, is always pleading with us every day to be indulged. Oh, please, just, just indulge me a little. And if we try to counter it with a strict diet or some kind of self-beating, it's not going to work. It's not good. It needs to stop. Back to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. 
insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, probably not angels being worshipped as the object of worship. That would almost certainly have been seen to be quite wrong, particularly by those from a, a Jewish background who were taught clearly that idolatry is wrong. But the worship of the kind that angels give God, now that might have been the sort of thing that's talked about here. And people claiming that their kind of way of worshiping God is, is just like the angels in heaven worship God. And you need to come and join in. And on top of that, they've had visions which confirm it. And they go into detail, verse 18, about these visions. They're not slow to tell you about their spiritual experiences in considerable detail. And it seems the whole thing is a kind of superior spirituality. Back to where we began. Have you ever felt other Christians looking down on you as if you're not really qualified spiritually the way they are? Well, remember the frying pan. Don't let these feelings of inferiority stick. Paul is quite specific in verse 18. These kind of people are puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. It's just their imagination that's actually bringing this about, that they talk about these visions. It's not a vision from God. It's something inside their heads. So when they talk about these things and make you feel inferior, develop a non-stick faith. Where all talk of a superior spiritual path, which you're not on, fails to stick in your mind or have any influence on your walk with the Lord. Instead, secondly, develop a sticky faith. Now, I don't have a, an illustration for this, I'm afraid. So uh, you'll have to tell me afterwards what I should have brought up from the kitchen below to help us remember this. Afraid I ran out of imagination at this point. But we need a sticky faith. Now, in what sense is sticky faith? Look at verse 19. Here Paul explains the problem with these false ways of thinking and speaking. These people who disqualify you and should not be allowed to disqualify you are not, verse 19, holding fast to the head. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already made that clear earlier in his letter. The Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, he's talking about the body of the local church in Colossae in the first instance, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Here is the core problem with these spiritually condescending ascetics and visionaries. It's that they are not holding fast to the head, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word, holding fast, it's the same word used in, by Luke in, in Acts 3, of the lame beggar who was healed by Peter and John after 40 years of being unable to walk. He was lame from birth. They come along. They heal him. He leaps up. Do you remember he was leaping and jumping? But it also says he wouldn't let them go. He clung on to them. They just totally transformed his life in a moment. And he wasn't going to let them go. It's that word, holding fast. It's the word used by Mark in Mark 9, where Jesus raises that 12-year-old girl from the dead. And it says they, I think this must be talking about the parents, maybe it was Jesus as well, they, they took her by the hand 
They grabbed hold of her and lifted them. I bet those parents gave her the most enormous hug as well. And we need to cling to Christ. We need to not let him go. We need to cling, embrace him, hug him, so to speak. Not physically, but in our hearts and minds. And if we do that, and if we do that together, remember, this isn't just an individual thing. This is plural. This is the whole body of the local church holding fast to the head. If we encourage one another to cling to Christ, to cling firm to him, to remember at a time, for example, of transition in the churches, I leave, the Lord Jesus, who is the head of this church, does not leave. And it's to him that we should cling. And so we continue to value him as the one who gives us our spiritual food, the whole body nourished through him. Verse 19. He will continue to feed the flock here as the word of God is opened and expounded and applied. He's the one who knits us together through joints and ligaments. It's an analogy of the body. But it's a unity idea, isn't it? Knit together. So through Christ, as we cling to him, he will keep us united. When there's always a danger of division at a time of uncertainty and change in the life of a church. The Lord Jesus Christ, if we cling to him, he will keep us united, knit together. And there will be growth, a growth that is from God, verse 19. As we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will enable us as a church to grow in maturity and in numbers. And if we have Christ, we have the solid reality that the Old Testament rules and regulations were pointing forward to. They are, remember, verse 17, only a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. To all the sacrifices that you read in the Old Testament, the priests, well, they've been replaced by one sacrifice, one priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, We're not looking for a replacement priest here. We're looking for a replacement pastor-teacher. The priesthood is gone. The Lord Jesus is our priest. And why should we play with the shadows when in Christ we have the reality? Verse 17, these things, these these things about food and drink and diet and days and observation of, of annual festivals and monthly or weekly days. These are a shadow of the things to come. And how crazy it would be if we met up with someone we love on a sunny day, out in the open, and we started trying to hug their shadow when they're standing in front of us. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Well, we need to embrace the Lord Jesus, Him. I know we don't see Him yet, We walk by faith and not by sight, though one day we shall see him in his glory, in his resurrection body. We're coming on to that next time. But meantime, we know he's there with us by his spirit and we cling to him and we trust him. The one with whom we die, verse 20, to the elementary principles of the world. So why would we submit to the world's way of operating again with its rules and regulations, an obsession with rules and regulations? 
No, we're, we're alive with Christ in a new way. We're united with him. Let's have a sticky faith that sticks with Christ and never lets him go. Oh, sure, it needs to be non-stick when it comes to others making us feel condemned or inferior. But it needs to be sticky when it comes to holding on, on to Christ, who, remember, has filled us with his fullness. Do you want freedom as a Christian? Do you want to walk in freedom? Who doesn't? This is the secret of it. A non-stick faith and a sticky faith based on the fullness that Christ has given us. Let's pray. Father, please may we be unable to be scammed or deceived or trapped by people who tell us we need to be filled from another source than Christ who has filled us with all his fullness if we are his followers. Please help us when we feel inferior because of other people who pass judgment on us, who seem to disqualify us, say we don't really count in this game. We've strayed. Lord, please would you give us non-stick faith that doesn't allow these things to stick. And please supremely give us a sticky faith that clings to the Lord Jesus Christ that will hold fast to him and not let him go at any time, any day. And we pray this for his glory and for the health of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>